Good morning, Faith family. I am so excited to be here with you this morning. I'm so thankful for the technology that makes it possible for us to gather in this way, to continue in our study of God's word together. So I want to invite you, if you will, to please take out your Bibles or open up your Bible apps on your devices and navigate over to the book of Ephesians to chapter three. We're going to spend our time in the first 13 verses there of that chapter of Ephesians chapter three. Obviously, we're continuing in this sermon series we're in. We've called Rooted that is from the book of Ephesians. And in this particular strange time of change that we've been in, I can't think of a more appropriate letter for us to be studying together. After all, it was written by the Apostle Paul, a missionary church planter and pastor who was actually instrumental in establishing the church there at Ephesus. At another part on his third missionary journey, he actually spent three years there in Ephesus with the believers, discipling them for an extended period of time. But now where we pick up in this book through circumstances outside of his control, Paul finds himself separated from the church there at Ephesus. He finds himself actually confined to his home not unlike some situations we find many of ourselves in. And I think if Paul were around today, he would be jumping on live streams like this. He'd be getting on Zoom calls. He'd be FaceTiming, hanging out on Google, texting, emailing, anything he could do to share with the church that he loves so much, to share with them encouragement and prayers and reminders, to give them teaching and challenges and calls to action. But obviously he didn't have that available to him then. So what he did is what he could. And he wrote this letter to the church there at Ephesus. Now he spends the first three chapters, especially focused on giving them encouragement and prayer and reminders and oh, what reminders they are. If you have not listened to the past two weeks of Pastor Matt's sermons, I would encourage you to do so. The first one entitled, This Is My Story, unpacks the truth of the gospel and how by grace through faith, it transforms us from dead sinners into living servants and saints of Jesus Christ. And then last week's sermon, this is our story that unpacks the truth of the gospel and how it transforms all of us who believe from disparate individuals and unites us together into a global church. But then here, when we get to chapter three of Ephesians, it's actually a transition chapter. Paul is intending to actually spend some time praying for those Ephesian believers. And the reason why is because all of that teaching and challenging, those calls to action, they're all coming. And Paul has laid the foundation of the gospel. And based on that foundation he has laid of the gospel in chapter two, he wants to pray for them to be empowered by God's presence in their lives for the life to which he is calling them to step forward into. But before he can even really get started, he kind of breaks his train of thought and begins to chase a rabbit trail for 12 verses, where what he's actually doing is expounding a little bit on part of his story for the Ephesian church. So as we read these verses together, let's keep that in mind. Remember that this is Paul's story. So if we'll follow along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, you have heard, haven't you, 
about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you. The mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may, be, may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then, I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Look at what, what Paul says there in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then you see most likely a dash there in your Bible. That dash, that's the beginning of the rabbit trail. Paul completely interrupts his train of thought. Look down at verse 14 that we didn't read. And it says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. So we start with, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And he picks up in verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Paul's intention here was to begin this prayer and he intended it to read something like, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, kneel before the Father and then he would continue. But as he started that, suddenly something occurred to him. He remembered something really important he wanted to be sure to share with them. And hasn't that ever happened to you? You've been talking to someone, maybe doing a presentation or telling a story, maybe even telling a joke, when all of a sudden you think, ah, oh, actually there's something really important I forgot to mention. Let me go ahead and tell you that because it's gonna help everything else make sense. And that's kind of what's happened to Paul here. Well, what was that thing then? What did he remember that was so important that he needed to break the flow of what he was doing, to interrupt the beginning of his prayer and to be sure it was included? What well, was simply this, Paul needed to give the Ephesians an explanation about his imprisonment. You see, Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. And Paul, he didn't want this imprisonment. He didn't want his present suffering to be a distraction for the Ephesians from all the good things that he had to say. So he needed to explain why he was imprisoned and he needed the Ephesians to know this very important truth. Suffering is worth it. Suffering is worth it. The particular suffering that Paul was enduring here in prison is where we find him at the end of the book of Acts. 
He's actually under house arrest in Rome, but it wasn't some sweet Airbnb situation that was going on. Yes, Paul was having to pay for this place out of his own pocket, but his time there was spent chained 24-7 to a guard. It was forced captivity. But this wasn't an unusual form of suffering to Paul. In fact, Paul was no stranger to sufferings of all kinds. Listen to how he himself described some of his suffering when he wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He wrote this, five times I have received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. Paul was intimately familiar with suffering. He knew suffering, but he also knew that suffering is worth it. But why? Why is suffering worth it? How could Paul possibly think this way? Well, two reasons. Number one, suffering is worth it because it's in service to Christ and the gospel. Because it's in service to Christ and the gospel. Again, look at how Paul describes himself in verse one. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is under house arrest in Rome under the authority of the Roman Empire. But Paul recognized what role that authority really had over his life. Rome only had power over him so long as it served the will of Christ in his life. Remember, this isn't Paul's first rodeo. This isn't his first time in prison. It's not going to be his last time in prison. Think about the story we read about in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas are imprisoned and they're chained together and they're behind locked gates to keep them in. And what are they doing? They're singing praises to God. They're praying. And what happens? An earthquake comes. And after the earthquake, no more chains. They've all fallen off. No more locked gates. They're all open for them. See, Paul knows that if Christ wants him free, then he'll be free. But Paul also knows what true freedom in Christ looks like. He wrote this when he wrote to the church in Rome. In Romans 8, the first two verses, he wrote, Therefore, There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That echoes what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church in chapter two. You were dead in your sins, but God made you alive together with Christ. On this Memorial Day weekend, let's remember that the freedom that Christ purchased for us With his death, it is freedom from the power of sin in our lives so that we might be empowered by the working of God in our lives, not so that we can now get to do whatever what we want to do, but so that now we can be free to obediently follow him and do whatever it is that he wants us to do.
And what did Christ want Paul to do? Well, in verse seven, he describes it this way. He says that he was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. In verse two, he says he was given the administration of God's grace. You see, Paul had a very specific job to do. He had a calling on his life. In service to Christ, he was made a servant of Christ's gospel. And Paul's recognition of Christ's complete lordship over his life made him willing to endure anything for the sake of serving him and sharing his gospel, even if that meant suffering. But because it was done in service to Christ and the gospel, then that suffering was worth it. And secondly, suffering is worth it because it's for the sake of others. Because it's for the sake of others. Again, in verse one, Paul wrote, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. In verse two, you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you. Verse eight, this grace was given to me to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. Verse nine, and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God. And then in verse 13, so then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf for they are your glory. From the time of his conversion, when Paul was given the gift of God's grace to be made a servant of the gospel, he had devoted his life to making that gospel known among the nations. And it was because of that fact that he suffered. In fact, every bit of suffering that he wrote about in 2 Corinthians 11, he experienced because he was sharing the gospel. And the suffering that he was now enduring there under house arrest in Rome was the result of him sharing the gospel. Well, so then that might lead us to ask the question, well, why not then just stop sharing the gospel? Huh, Paul, then you wouldn't be suffering so much. Well, Paul knows that if he stopped sharing the gospel, then people would stop hearing the gospel, which means that people would stop responding to the gospel by grace through faith, which means that people would stop being set free from their sins, which means that they would stay dead in their sins. Paul's suffering was worth enduring for the sake of others because it was a necessary part of proclaiming the gospel in a fallen and hostile world. And this completely flies in the face of the wisdom of our world. You know, we would typically say something along the lines of, hey, if you're doing something that's causing you so much trouble, then maybe you're doing something wrong and you should probably consider trying something else. But Paul knew that as a servant of Christ in the gospel, that if what he was doing on behalf of the Gentiles was bringing him this much trouble, then he had to be doing something really, really right. That was why Paul didn't want the Ephesians to be discouraged over his afflictions, over his suffering that he was enduring for their sake because his suffering was for their glory because it was through his suffering that his proclamation of the gospel would continue and people would have the opportunity to continue to respond 
and find life in Christ. The greater the suffering that Paul experienced in his life, the more confident that the Ephesians and other believers should be in the truth of the gospel and the power of Christ at work in him and in them. And the reason that truth flies in the face of the world's wisdom, the reason why it sounds so counterintuitive, so confounding is because that truth can only come from the gospel and the gospel is a wondrous mystery. The gospel is a wondrous mystery. Paul uses that word mystery here. He says in verse three that the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Well, what is this mystery he's talking about? Well, in verse four, he calls it the mystery of Christ. Okay, well, what is this mystery of Christ? Well, we can discern from his use of it here in chapter three from other places that he describes the mystery in Ephesians and then in other parts of his letters and other parts of the New Testament, we can know that the mystery of Christ is simply this. It's the gospel. Okay, well, why is the gospel mysterious? It can be difficult for us to answer that question because we're not served very well by our English understanding of the word mystery. When we think of mystery, we think of something that needs to be figured out, something that has a bunch of clues that if we can all just put them together just right, then we'll be able to see the whole picture and find the answers that we're looking for. But that's not the type of mystery Paul has in mind. You see, when he speaks of a mystery, he's speaking of something that can never be figured out, that can never be put together so that you arrive at the correct conclusion on your own. The mystery he's writing about is something that has to be made known to you. It has to be revealed to you. For her 11th birthday this past year, my daughter's story wanted to get together a couple of friends and go take part in one of these escape rooms. Uh, and so we did so here in town. I don't know if you've ever been a part of one. If you haven't, what you do is you go to a place and they have a bunch of different rooms with a bunch of different themes. And they take you in that room and they lock you in and the room might look like a museum. It might look like a prison. Our particular one looked like a train car. And when you're locked in this room, you have a mystery that you have to solve in order to be able to escape from the room, to be set free from the room, if you will. Our particular setup is that we were on a runaway train and there was a bomb on the train. And the mystery we had to solve was figure out who set the bomb, how do we stop the train, and how do we defuse that bomb? And there were all these clues all along the way that if we could just figure them out and put everything together, then we could solve that mystery and escape and be free once again. Well, this whole time that we're in there, the escape room doing this, there is someone who's called a game master somewhere else in the building in another room. Our game master's name was Des. And Des could see us through some video cameras and she could hear everything that we were saying and doing. So she was tracking right along with us. And in a normal game, you're able to call out to the game master and get three hints to help you figure out solutions to some of the clues or what you should do next or something like that. Well, as we were going along, we had an hour to do this and we were getting towards the end of our time and we weren't figuring things out. It was becoming very clear to me, very clear to my wife, Liza, very clear to Story and her friends that we were not going to get out on our own. We needed help. 
And so we called out to Des, and Des essentially had to reveal the mystery to us. She had to give us the answers because we couldn't figure out them on their own. And in her great mercy and in her grace for us, she did that and gave us the answers to the mystery so that we might escape and be free. And that's just a slight picture of what Paul is describing here. In verse 9, he says, The mystery was hidden for ages in God who created all things. God alone possessed knowledge of the mystery. He alone could see the whole picture. In verse 5, Paul writes, This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You see, all along, Throughout the Old Testament, there had been all these clues pointing to the mystery of the gospel, clues in creation, clues in the law, clues in the prophets of old, clues in the story of God's chosen people, Israel. But no one in all that time could put all the pieces together and figure out the mystery on their own. It had to be revealed to them. And God revealed that mystery through the life of the son and through the working of his spirit in the lives of his followers. Well, why did he have to do that? Why couldn't people figure it out on their own? Because the mystery of the gospel is wondrous. It is amazing. It is astonishing. It's both beautiful and surprising. It defies human reason. Think about it. Jesus, the king of the universe, came to earth as a baby born in a stable The creator of all things took on the form of creation. The Holy One was a friend of outcasts and sinners and the religious leaders of his day were the ones who saw him as an enemy. He lived without any sin and yet he took on the sin of everyone from all time. He conquered death by dying and he makes dead things alive again. Look, if you or I were put in charge, this is not how we would do it. And there's no chance that even with all the clues we were given that we would ever figure out on our own that this is how God would do it. So God made it known. He had to reveal his wondrous mystery to us. And now it's revelation. It unites God's people. It's revelation unites God's people. When writing about the mystery here, Paul has one particular aspect in mind. We see it in verse six. He writes, the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is basically what last week's sermon was all about. God undoing unbelonging. And this part of the mystery had to be revealed because in his covenant, With his people, when God said that he would bless them so they might be a blessing to the nations, never at once did they consider for themselves that what that would mean is that one day people from those pagan heathen nations would be united together with them as the family of God. But that's exactly what happens when we put our faith in Christ. When we understand Ephesians 2 when we know that we have all, regardless of our background, we've all been dead in our sins. But God, in his mercy, because of his great love for us, by grace through faith, he made us alive together with Christ and united us together, adopted us into his family, the church. 
And if you're one today, if you are hearing this for the first time, or if you're understanding this for the first time, if the gospel is finally penetrating into your heart so that you see your own deadness and sins, your own need for a savior, you can find that salvation in Jesus Christ. By grace, you can put your faith and trust in him and he too will make you alive. And then along with us, you too will become co-heirs, members, partners, as co-heirs, you'll receive the full inheritance of the incalculable riches of Jesus Christ. As members, it won't just be a member of an organization. It won't just be being on the inside of something instead of the outside, though it's definitely that. But no, you're member, a member, members. We are members of a body, something bigger than ourselves, where we can use our God-given gifts as we are led by Christ to accomplish his will for the world. And then we can be partners in the promise of Christ. All the promises of scriptures, all the ones from the Old Testament, those promises now apply to us. All the promises of the New Testament, those promises apply to us, his people, his family, his church. And it culminates in one of the most important promises in Matthew 28, 20, when Jesus promised, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's reflected in what Paul writes here in verse 12, that in him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. He is with us and we can boldly and confidently approach him and rely upon him. And that promise is especially applicable here because it follows, of course, what we know as the Great Commission the words of Jesus that we confess at the end of our worship gatherings that begins, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Not only does the revelation of the wondrous mystery of the gospel unite God's people, but also its proclamation gives us purpose. Its proclamation gives us purpose. God revealed the mystery through the life of the son and the ongoing work of the Spirit. And then the apostles and prophets, of whom Paul was one, they made the mystery known by proclaiming it to others, both Jews and Gentiles. And then, as those who heard that proclamation, as they responded in faith, they were added to God's people, and they began to join in that proclamation of the wondrous mystery of the gospel, on down through the ages, until someone who heard it from someone, who heard it from someone else, who heard it from someone else, finally shared the wondrous mystery of the gospel with you and with me, with us. So that as we respond by grace through faith, we too can be united with the people of God. And then we too are called to proclaim that wondrous mystery of his gospel to all peoples everywhere. That's the purpose of our time here on earth. It's the same purpose as it was for Paul to make Christ known among the nations, among all peoples. But you see, that's not just the purpose for each of us individually. It's not just the purpose for our individual lives. It's also the purpose for us collectively. God unites us together as his people for the purpose of their proclamation of the wondrous mystery of his gospel because the church is God's plan. The church is God's plan. Look at how Paul writes about the church in verses 10 and 11. He writes, this is so that God's multifaceted wisdom 
may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The church has been God's plan from the beginning. God has always been gathering together a people for himself. For generations, it was thought that that people was exclusively the people of Israel. But through the wondrous mystery of the gospel, he revealed his desire for his people to come from all peoples. That's a desire that we see finally fulfilled in the book of Revelation when we see a picture of the great throne room of the Lamb where there is a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number. And there, there, are, there are a myriad of reasons of why God has always had the church as his plan, of why he's done this. But Paul here, he's chiefly concerned with just one of those reasons, and then it's this. As the church, we make known the wisdom of God. We make known the wisdom of God. Now, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by wisdom? Well, one way to think about wisdom is this. Wisdom is, it's knowing the truth while also having a right understanding of what to do with that truth. Knowing the truth and also having a right understanding of what to do with that truth. Well, now this isn't just any wisdom. This is the wisdom of God. And God is omniscient. He knows all things. And God is the source of all truth. And God is good and righteous in all he does. So God is the perfect possessor of wisdom. In fact, wisdom, it's an inseparable attribute of God. It's a very essential part of what he is so much so that you could say that God is wisdom. Yet God's wisdom, it's often contradictory to our world's wisdom. His wisdom too is a wondrous mystery. It must be Revealed, You can't arrive at it on your own. It must be made known to you. So how does God do that? How does he make his wisdom known? Well, he does it through his church, through his people, through his family. He has made known the wondrous mystery of his wisdom in the gospel so that now we might make it known to others. So how do we do that? How do we as the church make his wisdom known? known. We do it through our message and our meeting. Here's what I mean. First, our message. We, the church, have been entrusted with the gospel, with the scriptures, with the very word of God. So we, as the church, we are making known the wisdom of God every time we speak, every time we share, every time we preach, every time we talk about God's word. Here at Brook Hills, we say that we pursue transformation so we abide biblically. That's just one of the reasons that we're doing what we're doing right now. It's one of the reasons that we study the Bible on our own and in our families and in our households and in our small groups. It's so that we can have the wisdom of God so that we can then make known the wisdom of God. It's our message. But God also reveals his wisdom through our meeting 
as the church, through the literal coming together of God's people, not just regular gatherings, though, yes, those are included, but just through being the church, through meeting together, through the coming together as he calls us together and unites us together with one another. Look at how Paul describes God's wisdom in verse 10. He says that it is God's multifaceted wisdom. That Greek word that's used there, that's translated multifaceted, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, that's the word that was used to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. What God is doing is revealing his wisdom through the gathering together of a many-colored, multicultural, multi-ethnic group of formerly dead sinners who have now been made alive together with Christ and, have, and who have become the very family of God. Theologian and scholar F.F. F. Bruce once wrote that the church is God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future. Think about it. Whenever a television network is wanting to produce a new show, they'll produce something called a pilot. It's like a trial episode, and it's meant to kind of give a picture, give a sense, give a feeling of what the whole rest of the show is going to be about on into the future. That's what F.F. Bruce was getting at here. The church is the early picture of what the perfected and glorified people of God will look like when reigning with Christ for all eternity. We are both the proclaimer and the picture of the wisdom of God. And through our proclamation and picture, we make his wisdom known to our world into the spiritual world. We make his wisdom known to our world and to the spiritual world. We're much more familiar with that first audience. We know to make disciples of all nations. We know to love our neighbors. We know that Paul proclaimed to the Gentiles, that he shed light for all, that we're called to share the gospel with people, to make known the wisdom of God, the wondrous mystery of his gospel to other people so that they might hear and respond in faith for their salvation and for God's glory. That's why around here we also say that we pursue outreach so we engage locally and we pursue mission so we reach globally. We want to make Christ known to all who have not heard, whether they are here in our city or around the world. We understand that that's our mission and purpose as a local church. But Paul had a second audience in mind. In verse 10, he says that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Well, who's that? It's the spiritual world. It's angels and demons. Yes, they are very real, but they are created beings. They're not God. They don't possess his knowledge. They didn't possess the understanding of the mystery. And so in his church, God is fully revealing to both angels and demons the truth of his gospel and the righteous redemption he is working in the lives of his people for the good of all creation. For the angels, this must be the most glorious news they have ever heard. And for demons, it must be, be the most terrifying because it spells their doom and destruction. But this sums up the importance of the church and what Paul is wanting to get across to the local church there in Ephesus. It's the reason that he chases this whole rabbit trail. Essentially, he's saying, we will have trouble and suffering in this world, yet we should hold fast to Christ and the wondrous mystery of his gospel he has made known to us because we have an audience far greater 
than any we could have imagined that is looking to us to see the amazing and astounding work of God in us and through us. That's what Paul wanted for the church at Ephesus. And may it also be what we want for the church at Brook Hills. So Brook Hills, as we close, let me give us just one encouragement and then three questions to consider. So first, let me encourage you with this. Remember, Paul's story is our story. We were dead in our sins. But God made the wondrous mystery of his gospel known to us and saved us by grace through faith and set us free from our sins, not to now do what we want to do, but rather to devote our lives to doing what he wants us to do. And he has called us then to make the wondrous mystery of his gospel known no matter the cost. We also say that we pursue faith, so we risk intentionally. And this is what we mean. We will pursue the mission and purpose Christ has given us, risking everything for its sake, for the sake of others, and for the glory of God. So in light of that, three questions just for us to consider to help us maybe discern a little bit about how we're doing. The first one is this. What is the world learning about God by watching us? What is the world learning about God by watching us? What are they learning about God when they see us with our families? What are they learning about God when they see us with our roommates, with our friends? What are they learning about God when they see us at work, at school, in our leisure time? What are they learning about God by watching us online? I shudder to think what some people's impressions of God are based on the way some of us behave on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. What are they learning about God by watching us? Secondly, are we helping others see and understand the gospel? Are we helping others see and understand the gospel? Are we living out the wondrous mystery? Are we speaking about it? Are we sharing about it? Are we teaching it? Again, in our, with our families in our homes, with our friends, at work, at school, with strangers we meet, with our neighbors in our neighborhood, in the houses next door to us? Are we seeking and striving to intentionally ensure that people around the world have access to the gospel? Are we helping others see and understand the gospel? Do we saturate our words and actions with that wondrous mystery? And then last, do we suffer well? Do we suffer well? In this world, we'll experience suffering of all kinds. We can experience suffering of our own making because of the mistakes and bad decisions we make. We can experience suffering of others making because of what they do to us. We can experience suffering that simply exists because we live in a broken and fallen world. But when we suffer, regardless of what kind of suffering it is, it doesn't mean that we suffer without pain. It doesn't mean that we suffer without, without concern. It doesn't mean that we suffer without questions. But if we suffer in service to Christ in the gospel, it means that we can suffer with hope. It means that we can suffer with peace. It means that we suffer with faith. And we can suffer for the sake of others so that they might see our faith. So they might see 
our peace, so they might see our hope, so that they might hear our message and through our endurance through suffering, we might prove the truth of what we say. You know, in this season, we've all suffered to varying degrees lately. Members of our faith family have suffered in their health because they've actually contracted this disease that's been spread around the world. We have members who have suffered because they've lost loved ones to this disease. We have members that are suffering because they've lost a job during this time, because they've experienced financial loss during this time. Some of us are suffering from what we see as loss of freedom. And we've all certainly experienced suffering because of loss of comfort. But as we've suffered during this time, have we suffered well in service to Christ and the gospel and for the sake, not of ourselves, but for the sake of others? Have we done that well? It's not too late to do so. Church of Brook Hills, faith family, let's confound the world and make the wisdom of God known to the heavenly powers in the midst of our suffering as we proclaim the wondrous mystery of his gospel together.